Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you this day for your kindness and mercy. We thank you that you have forgiven us of our sins and cleansed us from all unrighteousness. And that we ask that you would grant us grace now. That you grant me grace to preach your word. You grant my brothers and sisters the grace they need to hear your word. And we ask that your spirit would apply these things to our lives. In the name of Jesus we ask. Amen. Well, as we continue to look at the Lord's Prayer, I hope that in the past few weeks you've noticed, and if you haven't, I'll tell you, that the Lord's Prayer, it moves in a progression. It's orderly. It makes sense the way the petitions are set up. In the preface to the Lord's Prayer, we learn that our prayers should begin with praise and adoration. And we learn that God is very different than us. Our Father who art in heaven. That assumes that we understand that we are on earth. And that we understand that we are not God. That there is a difference between the creator and the creature. And that as Christians we understand that that chasm between creator and creature was bridged by the Lord Christ who became the perfect God-man. 100% God, 100% man and perfect in all respects. Tempted like as we are, yet without sin. The greatest mystery of all human history. God and man in one being, at one time, forever. And in the first petition, hallowed be thy name, we learn that we ask God, we have the privilege of asking God to glorify his name, to spread his reputation throughout the world. That his name, his reputation, might be revered, that it might be feared, that he might be worshipped throughout the world. That he would literally make himself famous. That he would spread his reputation. That his people would boast about him the way they boast about their favorite sports teams. I say that with a little bit of sarcasm because we're supposed to be boasting in God. And only in God, not in ourselves, not in our hometown, not in our education, not in our children or our grandchildren. Certainly nothing wrong with being happy about those things. But our boast is to be in the Lord. And if we are boasting and spreading about the fame of anything more or anyone more than we do the Lord our God, then we are in a bit of a quandary because we are then really worshipping that person or that thing more than we are God, and therefore we are in violation of the first commandment, and we have to confess our sins and repent and start over. So we arrive today at the second petition. Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. Mm, Serious words. Weighty words. Life-altering words, if we think about them. What does it mean when we ask God, thy kingdom come? Now, it's archaic language. It's Shakespearean language. We don't speak like that. Try and speak like that tomorrow on the job, and people will give you a very strange look. Use thys and thous, these. They'll look at you as if something's askew between your ears, something has gone wrong. Thy kingdom come. What we're asking here is that God would manifest his power in the here and now. It's very related, as you can see, to hallowed be thy name. How could God possibly 
hallow his own name, make his reputation famous, if his kingdom isn't manifesting itself. And vice versa, if his kingdom is manifesting itself in the here and now, then his name will have to go forth because it is his kingdom. Now, there are a couple of things that we have a problem with here. If the Father is sovereign over everything, if the Father is eternal, if the Father is uncreated and his kingdom somehow reflects his being, then his kingdom itself must be limitless. His kingdom, listen carefully, covers every millimeter of your experience on this globe. God's kingdom includes your thoughts, your emotions, your actions, your intentions, your vocation, your politics, your leisure time, Every single thing in your life is within the compound, as it were, of God's kingdom. And when you're in the castle of a king, guess what? You obey the rules. We don't live in a monarchy. We don't know what it's like to have to go into Buckingham Palace. And the Queen of England doesn't have that much oomph anymore. It's, you know, she has a lot of oomph, but she can't execute people. She's not Henry VIII. Able to summarily dismiss people from this life and let them gain entrance into the next. There are Christians in the world who live under such persons. Now, if you're a Christian in Saudi Arabia, you have to answer to the house of Saud. And if you name the name of Christ in front of the house of Saud, they will slice off your head. That's an absolute monarchy. And all monarchies, in their best sense, that have ever existed in this world, mirror God's power. And you see, what happens is the evil one with whom we are at war, he establishes parodies of God's kingdom. You see, our lives and this church and your families are to mirror God's kingdom. They are to reflect his kingdom and his character. But what happens is sin and Satan, he has a kingdom as well, and we'll get to that in a moment. They turn those things into a parody, a, a comedy, a mockery of that kingdom. And there's a difference between a reflection and a comedy. Here's how you can tell. A photograph is a reflection of a person. A political cartoon will often be a parody of the person. The person's head or the person's features will be made in an exaggerated fashion. Why? So that you'll ask the person. Whether or not they're sinful or not, I'll leave that up to you to decide. But they're not really reflecting who the person is. When I was a boy, growing up under the Carter administration, he had a big smile, didn't he? He had, he had a, a, a big set of teeth. They were white and he took care of them. And very often... Um, political cartoons would show his smile and his smile would be as large as his entire face. And we knew that in life that wasn't the case. They were ridiculing the man, which they shouldn't have done. They weren't reflecting what he looked like. They were parodying it, making it a mockery. And that's what Satan does to God's kingdom. 
He wants to mock God's kingdom. And the way he does that is he extends his idea of what that kingdom should look like. Because remember, Satan's sin is that he wants to be on God's throne. He wants to be in place of God. Antichrist doesn't mean just against. It means in place of as well. Now, if God's kingdom is limitless and his kingdom is to be reflected in every aspect of our lives, we have another problem. That ain't the way it is. God's kingdom, if we're honest with ourselves, it doesn't blanket our lives, does it? Not completely, not perfectly, not entirely. If we're honest with ourselves, even if we're Christians, even if we are truly trying to live according to the law of God and trying to work out our salvation and trying to progressively sanctify our lives through the power of the Spirit, we have to admit that we walk with divided loyalties. We fly often under false colors. We're traitors to the commonwealth of Christ or Benedict Arnold's, as it were. Sacco's and Vanzetti's. Maybe you don't know who those people are. Go home and look them up. We're traitors. We sin. We don't do what we know we're supposed to do. And then we repent and we go out and guess what? We don't do what we know we're supposed to do and we do what we are not allowed to do. It's called sin. It's a crime. God is a lawgiver. When you violate his law, it's a crime. It's a very helpful way of looking at God's government. He has laws. We break them. He calls them sins. We go into his court. We plead guilty. Mea culpa, mea culpa. No excuse. And he pardons us. Doesn't find us not guilty. He pardons us. And then he sends us out through the court doors. And what are we to do as pardoned criminals? Now, in the real world, what we should do is, if we were thieves and pardoned as thieves, go and get a job. If we were traitors to the nation and we were pardoned, we would go out and become exemplary citizens. The same thing works in God's spiritual kingdom. When God pardons us and sends us into the world, we are to live as exemplary citizens in his kingdom. Now, the difference is, is that in the United States, I'm pretty sure you only get pardoned once. I'm pretty sure if you do the same thing and you come back, that you're not going to get a second swipe, no matter who you are. In God's kingdom, you can receive pardon not once, not twice, but continually. Because most of us sin and stumble in many ways, and not in various ways. We sin and stumble in the same ways. For years and years and years. And if that's weighing you down, if you might feel like Job because of your sin, listen, I have a little secret for you. That's the experience of everybody you meet in the church. Maybe they're not struggling with that particular sin that has been knocking you over the head for 30 years, but they have their own sins that are stabbing them in the back. Actually, we grab a hold of our sins and we stab ourselves. That's the way it works. Sin isn't alive. It doesn't have an independent existence. It has to have something moving it. And what moves it is our desires, our will. We want to do those things that we do. We might regret it right after we do it, but when we're doing it, we feel really good about it. It's an ugly portrayal of ourselves. 
But the beauty of God's grace is that Christ's blood covers all of that ugliness. And you can never run to the cross enough. And what happens to us as Christians, particularly in our day and age, we like to think, we focus on what we think are our kingdom entitlements, the benefits of kingdom citizenship, and we rarely, if ever, give any thought to our kingdom responsibilities. There was a time in our own country where people were citizens and they thought more about their responsibilities than what they were supposed to get. Once upon a time, it was like that. It's not like that anymore. And very often, the church is like that as well. We think, what can God do for me? What is the church going to do for me? Not saying, what can I do for the church? I think I might have sounded like John F. Kennedy there just a little bit. What are your kingdom responsibilities, brothers and sisters? What has God, where has God placed you in his church? Are there benefits to kingdom citizenship? Yes, and guess what? They come with responsibilities. And here's what you have to understand, is that the kingdom responsibilities are in themselves a kingdom benefit. The responsibilities that God gives you in his kingdom are a benefit in themselves. Listen, is it good to fight for God? To be on his side? Can you think of any nobler purpose for your life than to fight for God's kingdom in thought, word, and deed? I can't. I can't think of anything better for you or your children or your grandchildren than to stand fast for the Lord and the faith all the days of your life. Can you think of anything better? There isn't. Don't try. So when we pray, thy kingdom come, we're dealing with these things. We're dealing with God's power. And we must fight to advance God's kingdom, listen, using prayer as a spiritual weapon. Prayer is a weapon. And it is to be used by us to advance God's kingdom. We have the privilege of being warriors for God and praying his kingdom into effect. Now listen, that's a great mystery and a great... Mystery is the only word I can think of. God could just, you know, he doesn't have fingers, he doesn't have a body, he just snap his metaphorical fingers and have it all be right there. For reasons left only to himself, he has chosen not to do it that way. He's chosen to have his kingdom progressively manifest itself and he's given you and you and you and everybody in this room the chance to be part of advancing that kingdom. That is a noble thing. That is a great honor. But when we focus on our entitlements in the kingdom, rather than our responsibilities, we stain that honor, and quite frankly, we miss out on the blessing. What does Jesus say? He who would be great amongst you, he says this to the disciples, he who would be great amongst you, must be the servant of all. Well, who wants to be the servant of everybody else? Well, doesn't it sound like it's more fun to have somebody wait on you? Let's think of the home. Let's just be honest. Dishes are much more efficiently cleaned by someone else in the house. 
they just look better. Food, generally speaking, tastes better when someone else pays for it and cooks it, presupposing they know how to cook. It's nice to be waited on. We like it. Um, When we read the Gospels, we don't see Christ being waited on. Hmm? He's on his throne now, but when he was incarnate, he did the waiting. He did the work. He did the serving. And if we are Christians, then that's the attitude we should have. And what we don't understand is that by developing that attitude, we actually live a more satisfying life. You see, Satan wants to be God. He wants to be waited on. And he tricks us. That's one of his techniques. He gets us to think, well, if they did that for me, then I'd be happy. So they do that for you. And guess what? You want them to do just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Not realizing that if you did something for them, that then you would be happy. Serving others makes you satisfied. Serving Christ and his kingdom makes you satisfied. Waiting for others to do the work will only bring more dissatisfaction to your soul. And prayer is where we do the war. Do we have things to do? Yes. There are some ladies who aren't here in worship right now. Why? Because they're across the way getting ready to feed us. It's a sacrifice. You might be thinking, well, you know, I'd rather be over there making sandwiches than listening to you. Hopefully that's not the case. And those of you who are thinking that, I can read your mind. Prayer is a weapon. Prayer scares the evil one. Prayer scares the evil one. Why are we to use prayer as a spiritual weapon in order to advance kingdom? God's kingdom. It's very simple. Prayer works. Prayer is effective. And prayer is... Sometimes the only thing we have at our disposal, if you're in a war and you're under attack, I've never been in war, but I've spoken with people who have been, you basically grab the first weapon you can find that you think will get the job done. Very often prayer is all we have. In Mark chapter 9, we have that gut-wrenching account of Jesus healing a boy with a possessed by a mute demon. He couldn't speak. Jesus has been off doing ministry in another place. He comes upon the scene and from the distance he sees his disciples squabbling and disputing with the scribes. And he comes up to the crowd and he asks the scribes, what are you you fighting about? Someone from the crowd, Father, says, Master, I brought my son to your disciples. He's had this spirit in him that sometimes throws him into the fire, sometimes throws him into water to destroy him. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. Jesus then says, Faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? He says, bring him to me. And as soon as the demon inside of the boy sees Jesus, 
flops him down on the ground. He starts to convulse. The demons are terrified of Christ in the Gospels. They want nothing to do with the person of Christ. He asks, how long has this been going on? Since his childhood. I want you to put yourself in the place of that father. Can't do anything to get his son better. He brings him to the disciples of Christ and they can't do anything. He's still flopping on the ground, frothing at the mouth. Jesus does the job. Heals him right away. Later, the disciples ask him, um, what was the problem? What did we do wrong? Why couldn't we do it? And Jesus says this, this kind, this kind, can only be cast out by prayer and fasting. That shows us a couple of things. It shows us that there's levels to evil. There are different kinds of demons. This is spooky. This isn't creature feature stuff. This is very real. Do you understand that you and I in this church, your families, we're in a war? That your very lives, your souls are at stake that the lives of your children depend on how we fight this war. Because your enemy, the evil one, is real. He's not a metaphor. He's not made up by Hollywood. He is a real being. And he has his own kingdom. He has his own desires. And they are absolutely no good for you. The evidence is found there in Mark 9. That's what he wants to do to your children if he had a chance. Throw them into the fire. Throw them into the water. Throw them on the ground. Have them froth at the mouth like a rabid beast. That's what he wants. That's who we fight. And Jesus says this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. Prayer. It's the only thing that could do the job with this level of evil. That's what Satan's kingdom looks like. And you say, well, hmm, Satan has a kingdom. Yes, he does. So does God. God's kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness and holiness. Therefore, sin isn't allowed in its gates. Sin and evil aren't allowed in God's kingdom. They're not allowed. So the first thing that we acknowledge when we say that kingdom come is we're acknowledging our own sinfulness. We're acknowledging that things aren't as they ought to be. The first order of business isn't that we go out and change our country or that we change the culture. First thing is that we acknowledge our own sinfulness. We get our own houses in order. What does the scripture say? Judgment begins with the house of God. We have enough problems of our own. We admit that we are sinners. We admit that Adam's fall is real. We admit that Adam's fall affects us. And you say, well, how is that? Well, let me ask you this. If you say, thy kingdom come, or let's put it in modern language, Father, manifest your kingdom today. Advance your kingdom today. What you're saying is, is that it's not here yet. Not perfectly. Because if the kingdom was there perfectly, you wouldn't have to ask that it would come, would you? If you're eating a slice of pizza 
and that's all you wanted in life at that moment, you wouldn't have to ask for another piece, would you? Slice. No, because it would be right there in front of you. Now, if the slice isn't there yet, you ask, could you please bring me a slice of the meat lover's pizza, please? Once it arrives, it's done. God's kingdom is here and now. But it's not here completely. Because God's kingdom in its perfect manifestation has no sin. It has no evil. And there is sin and evil in your life, correct? There's sin and evil in your family's life. Dads, are you the best fathers that you can possibly be? Moms, are you the best moms you can be? Yes. Children, are you the finest children that you can possibly be? Church officers, are you the best church officers you can be? i got news for you. I'm not the best pastor or preacher that I could be. We all stumble in many ways. The kingdom is in process. It's strange. The battle, the war has been won. Christ is on his throne. But these little skirmishes and battles still have to be fought. That's not the way it works in, in terra firma, in the world. If you beat your enemy, it's pretty much done. It's over. We don't have to fight World War II anymore. The Germans are getting stronger. No, I'm not sure if World War III is coming down the pike in the next 20 years. We'll find out soon enough. But World War II is over. We don't have to fight that one anymore. Japan doesn't even have an army, really. They're like a color guard. We don't have to worry about it. War's done. Anybody want to fly off to Iwo Jima and do it all over again? You don't have to. The war's done. It's been finished. But this war still rages. This war still rages. And prayer is, listen, it is the primary way you wage war against the evil one. That is the primary weapon. If you can craft a prayer life for yourself, and for your families, if you can teach your children how to pray, and not only teach them how to pray, but teach them to pray, you will be waging war against the evil one. Satan takes no rest, brothers and sisters. He doesn't have to sleep. He never lets up. Sometimes he retreats only to attack again. We'll talk about him and his kingdom and his opposition to God's kingdom more next week, but I want you to think hard today about this thing. That you have the ability and the privilege of using prayer to advance God's kingdom. So I call upon you to go home and to pray, Thy kingdom come. Advance your kingdom, Father, in my life, in my family's life, in this church's life. There's a whole lot more to say about it, and we'll get to it next week. But that's where we have to start. Thy kingdom come. God is a king, brothers and sisters. Do you want his kingdom to advance or not? Let's pray. Oh, Lord our God, we ask that as we begin to think about your kingdom and how we can 
help manifest it. We ask you would teach us to pray. In Christ's name, amen.